You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. In this week's podcast, John Young, Professor of Elderly Care Medicine at Leeds University, gives Mabel Chu some tips on carrying out a cognitive assessment of an older person. The mistake that I see that we make very commonly in secondary care is we actually send the, the carer away. But actually, it's much better to have an interview with a partnership. But before that, Holland Crumholtz explains to Deborah Cohen how he persuaded Medtronic to agree to independent scrutiny of their data that's unprecedented in the medical industry. Medtronic have been in the firing line recently, from the medical community through the media to the US Senate. Questions are being asked about the safety of its recombinant human bone morphogenic protein product, called Infused, used during spinal surgery. Holland Crumholtz, a professor of medicine at Yale School of Medicine, used this scrutiny to offer Medtronic a chance to do what no other medical technology company has done, the chance to open up all the data on Infused to independent scrutiny and fund the research looking at it. A steering committee will appoint two groups to carry out meta-analyses of the data, paid for by a $2.5 million fund from Medtronic. Earlier this week, I spoke to Harlan and asked him how his scheme was initially received. You know, as we sort of developed this model, I have to tell you, you know, there were so many people that came to me and said, well, that's a great idea, but, you know, that will never, ever happen. And people told me that from industry, people told me that from academics. I would start explaining this model and they would almost stop me in in midstream and say, you know, that's the fantasy. Don't even talk about that because let's talk about something that might be more realistic. But, you know, when you really look at the the, the scene now, you, what you see is that industry's reputation has really dropped substantially. People are concerned. They've lost confidence and trust in these companies. So they're in great need to show to the public that they are really interested in the societal good and, and want to contribute in ways that are meaningful. They, they also are, I think, in need of, of getting away from uh, you know, who's going to win based on marketing and figure out who's going to win based on the science. And as we go to healthcare systems that are increasingly concerned with cost, values becoming you know, a big focus, and people really want to know what the evidence shows. And and finally, I think it's just becoming untenable for us to know that when questions are being raised about products for which decisions are being made every day, that that, that information is being held back. Harlan, how did you persuade Medtronic to hand over the data and invest in your program? An opportunity opened up with with Medtronic because they were facing some pretty severe criticism about one of their products, Bone Morphogenic Protein 2, and it led to questions about their ethics and the strength of their literature and really whether this drug had um, harms that were unappreciated. This gave us an opportunity to step forward and to talk to them about a model that we had been developing and to see whether they might want to participate. They were at that same time thinking that they wanted to get an independent review of their data, but what I convinced them about was for them simply to hire somebody to do an independent review, if that group were to find something in favor of the company, wouldn't wouldn't fly so well in the public, even if the right thing had been done. And so we were able to talk to them about about this model that would both be fair to them, but serve society's interest in getting out the data. And how do you ensure that they release all the data, including that data that perhaps doesn't show their product in the best possible way? Yeah, that's a really good question, one I've heard a lot. And I think the best way is through the wisdom of crowds. We're going to post publicly all the data that they're going to release to us, and if anybody knows of anything else that's, that's there, uh, we hope they'll come forward and, and let us know. I think it would be awful for the company to hold back these data. I mean, not just from an ethical standpoint, but from a reputational point of view. If finally, they're contractually obligated to provide us all the data. It's in our contract with them. 
Richard Lehman is a retired GP, now researcher, who's probably familiar to many BMJ readers with his weekly roundups of medical research. He's working with Harlan on this scheme. When I saw Harlan's proposal, I sort of dropped off the chair, really. And like many of the people he, he told about it, I thought, well, this is just fantastic in every sense of the word. It's a fantasy. And yet, two weeks later, it was a reality. And, you know, I, I'm coming to terms with that um, as part of the team that's helping to create this model. Um, and I, I think it's going to have an enormous impact because... I don't think there's any going back now to the old system. Uh, and I think it's for us to show that it works and that to, to demonstrate that it's open and that uh, it's a model for all of industry to follow. But I can't really um, say how excited I am to be part of this and um, how, how much I think Harlan should be congratulated for pushing ahead in the face of uh, all this disbelief. Why have we allowed it to happen for so long? I think it's because we felt imprisoned by a system which is beyond our control. We, we don't want to criticise industry unnecessarily because they are the generators of new interventions. What we, what we have lost sight of is the kind of ethical oversight that we as the public ought to be exerting on this. We thought that it was being exerted by bodies like the FDA or the European Medicines Agency. And yet time and time again, just recently, they've been exposed as really incapable of defending our interests fully and adequately. Holland is now looking for researchers who will be able to interrogate this data in a fair and accurate way. Well, I think they're going to have to be people who both tap into some content knowledge in this particular area because it's always important to have an understanding of what it is you're studying and what the context is, and really strong methodological expertise in doing systematic reviews and thinking about how to draw inferences from of that data as well. And then I'm also interested in some expertise in ethics, you know, that they would have some sensibility around what are some of the ethical issues embedded here and what are some of the biases that can creep into analyses that are done like this, both pro or, or con, uh, you know, with regard to industry. We, we just want everything, you know, to be, like I said, fully transparent, but we need a certain sensitivity to where does bias enter in in, in doing these, this kind of work and where are the discretionary decisions, where are the decisions that aren't discretionary. And, you know, we want all that laid out in reports that are ultimately going to be shared with the public. I doubt that the end this is about a verdict on the product, but it's going to be more about saying, what can we know from what data exist, and where are those gaps that we need to address going forward, and how can we understand the uncertainty that will inevitably exist after we do a thorough review of all the data that are available? And that uncertainty, of course, exists no matter you know, how thorough or deep the data are, but it's about trying to be really explicit about that and, uh, and what we know about, about benefits and harms. This is the first scheme of its type, but Harlem feels that it's been far too long coming. He hopes it will usher in a new openness in the relationship between the medical industry and researchers. Yeah, well, personally, I feel there's no situation where the profession and the public don't deserve the opportunity to, un, you know, have the totality of evidence that's available about a product. I just can't fathom why we're in a situation where maybe sometimes half of the trials aren't published and, and, and sometimes key information in the trials that are published is, is not available to investigators and others who are seeking to try to understand this balance of risks and benefits. We will probably learn ways to tweak and improve and refine 
this model. There may be particular ways to, to tailor it for given situations, but the, the driving force behind it to, to free the data so, so it can be available for open review is, uh, you know, I, I see no compromise on that. I just think it's, it's just something that we have to continue to push. And true, we have to be cognitive fairness issues all the way around, but there is a compelling societal interest. If I'm a patient, I'm trying to make a decision about a treatment, and in the end, my doctors and everyone talking to me are basing their opinions only on a fraction of evidence that that could be available. I should be I should be pretty upset, and uh, you know we need to fix this problem. And Deborah Cohen's new story about that initiative is available online. Now, Mabel Chu gets some tips on carrying out a cognitive assessment of an older person. I have with me in the studio Professor John Young, who's a geriatrician in Bradford and Professor of Elderly Care Medicine at Leeds University. John, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Yep, thank you. I'm pleased to be here. John, we know that older people are prone to problems that affect cognition, such as depression and dementia and delirium. Can you tell us how a cognitive assessment can help pick up these conditions? Uh, it's uh, probably the only way, actually, of picking up these conditions. What, what we like to try and think of is not thinking about these conditions as separate entities. Think of them together, coming in threes. And so we quite often actually refer to them as the three Ds because they're completely intertangled in clinical practice. And uh, cognitive assessment is the means by which you can try and disentangle them and identify them as discrete entities. Okay, so tell us what the best way is of doing a cognitive assessment. Fundamentally, it is very simple. Really, there there are three components to it. Um, The first one is to do with the patient's history, which we usually refer to as patient observations. It's about intelligently listening to the patient's narrative and discerning some critical symptoms that might indicate underlying cognitive impairment. Uh, The second thing is... Uh, almost invariably it's important to get a collateral account from somebody who knows the person very well. Uh, And quite often it's very simple. You just need to make a telephone call to uh, a relative, uh, a wife or a husband. And the third thing um, is to do some standardized tests of cognitive function, which I think a lot of people feel are in the domains of the neurologist or the clinical psychologist. But actually these are very simple um, cognitive screening tests that are well within the capacity of all um, general practitioners and hospital specialists. Let's take tackle these one by one. With patient observations, what are we looking for? The, the first thing is, is just to listen to the patient's narrative. If you just listen intelligently to what the patient's saying, you can begin to pick up clues that things aren't right. Um, for example, if the person's dwelling excessively on past events and you get a sense that they're not really talking about what's been going on in the recent past, uh, that's a really important clue that maybe you're thinking that the patient's got uh, a dementia syndrome. Uh, or if when they're talking to you, their, their speech seems rather strange, maybe missing words, uh, that's quite an important marker of the fact that they may have delirium. Uh, or if there's a sense that they're, they're losing interest in their life, that they're expressing lots of negative views, of course, these, are, these are, might be some symptoms of depression. That's very interesting. And, and GPs often look for patterns of behaviour rather than single symptoms or signs. Um, so these features that you've outlined are very useful tips. Drugs are another important cause of um, cognitive impairment, aren't they? 
Certainly they can be. And of course, alcohol, as we well know, can dull the senses. But drugs are particularly relevant and important in, in the context of delirium. We know that delirium is very poorly recognized uh, by medical practitioners. Uh, and, and drugs are one of the uh, possible potential precipitants of delirium. And there are three drug classes in particular which seem to be very potent causes of delirium. And that's the opiate analgesics, um, benzodiazepines, and uh, rather surprisingly, actually, calcium channel blockers like amlodipine or nifedipine. Uh, and possibly antihistamines are another uh, common uh, drug-related cause for delirium. What should we be looking for in the physical examination, talking about patient observation at this point? It's a good principle anyway in medicine for older people to start with a very wide focus. Certainly that there are important things to do with nutrition, which can be important uh, contributor or symptom related to dementia or depression. So looking for is there any evidence of some self-neglect in terms of nutrition? Uh, uncorrected visual and hearing problems are very common and they contribute to worsening symptoms in dementia and their risk factors for delirium. And of course, they don't make depression a lot better either. Uh, I think as well as that, the general examination should be looking for new physical illnesses, which sometimes could be quite occult in older people. Uh, and if you feel that the person has got a delirium, then you should be looking really hard to see if there is the slightest evidence for a chest infection, a urine infection, obviously test the urine for protein, uh, and nitrates. Also looking, sometimes a skin infection can be quite tricky to pick up unless you remind yourself to look for it. As far as the dementias are concerned, it's obviously good practice to do a neurological examination. And, and I think you're specifically looking for signs of upper motor neurone pathology. That's to say, um, any signs that might have been some strokes that might indicate a vascular dementia. Uh, and you're looking for signs of extrapyramidal dysfunction, increased tone, cogwheel-type rigidity, uh, any bradykinesia, slow movements when you get them to do some, some tapping movements of their fingers, uh, a mask-like face, or you know, common features of an extrapyramidal dysfunction, which might indicate dementia with Lewy body disease, which we now recognize is one of the common types of dementia. One very other important thing during the examination, uh, I think you should be looking to see how they're responding to you, particularly in terms of have they got a delirium? Are they rather sleepy? As you try and do things to them, do you notice that their eyes tend to just rather drift away? The attentiveness and the sleepiness are two cardinal features of delirium. Okay, well let's move on to the second tool in a cognitive assessment, and that's a collateral count. Very simply, it's just contacting uh, somebody who knows the person well and asking really to try and clarify some of the cognitive impairment symptoms, uh, memory loss and orientation and difficulty with daily life activities. When was this person last cognitively well and healthy? Uh, and what changes have occurred, if any, in, in the last few days or hours? because it's changes in the last few days and hours which really uh, put you in the position of knowing whether the person may have a delirium or not. So that's quite a critical piece of information to try and pick up on. You also mention in your article a very simple question that uh, has a high sensitivity for delirium. Uh, it's called the, the squid uh, question. <laughs> the single question in delirium. 
And uh, I, I think it's uh, really valuable, actually. It's just very simple. You just say uh, either to the patient, but more usually to, to a carer, do you think your husband, your wife, has been more confused lately? So it's not a rocket science question. It's really very simple. Uh, and uh, in a, uh, a well-conducted uh, observational study, uh, it was found to have an 80% sensitivity for delirium. So it's a really good screening test for delirium. It is very simple, and, and it then can lead to a, a useful conversation about what exactly they've noticed too. I must say, as a GP myself, there's no substitute to talking to somebody who knows and lives with them. You get so many important clues to subtle changes in functional behaviour that wouldn't be apparent to an occasional observer like the GP. Yes, uh, and, and I think the, the, it's possibly easier in primary care because I think quite often husband and wives may come together for the consultation. The mistake that I see that we make very commonly in secondary care is we actually send the, the carer away. But actually it's much better to have an interview with a partnership. And then there's an interplay that develops between the three of you which much more reliably picks up on, on these rather subtle symptoms. Uh, so, for example, if you're talking to, say, the husband who's the patient and the wife's there, the look on her face sometimes when the husband says something which is, is manifestly not true. Uh, because w one of the, the, the pitfalls that we all fall into when we're trying to pick up on uh, dementia, depression and delirium is that quite often the patient is very plausible. They're giving a very plausible history uh, and of course, unless you're in a position to know that what he's saying uh, is to some extent erroneous, um, you, you, you just go along with the story. Um, so having the, the partner there in front of you, um, it, it, it just makes the whole procedure much more reliable and you're much less likely to make a clinical mistake. Yes, that's an important point. Um, shall we move on to the standardised uh, assessment, uh, which is the... Yes third tool uh, in the cognitive assessment process? So this, this is, as you say, this is the third element of making a secure um, diagnosis of uh, cognitive impairment. Uh, and there are a variety of what are termed brief standardised assessments available to practitioners. Uh, in fact, there's too many of them, really. Uh, and it's, so it's very confusing to know which one to select. Really, there is no perfect individual test that can be recommended for all circumstances, all patients, all clinical settings. So to some extent, each practitioner needs to decide for themselves which one they feel is most useful to their clinical practice. In practical terms, often in, as individuals, we don't make that choice because, for example, most elderly care departments will have a tool that between the various consultants, it's been decided this is the one that the departments will use, which the junior doctors will use, and which we'll become familiar with. Similarly, in departments of um, psychiatry for old age, they, they use their own tools, which uh, they're very uh, comfortable with. Obviously, it makes sense for geriatricians and psychiatrists to be using the same tools. And also, it makes sense for the local general practitioners to be using the same tools so that we can all be using the same language. It makes referrals and conversations uh, and management of patients that much more straightforward. So although potentially there's a big choice out there, in practice there's probably a few local tools and those are the ones to become familiar with. 
John, thank you very much. That was a great summary of how one can perform a cognitive assessment of the older person. There are specific things we can do quite easily that will tease out some of these important syndromes that can commonly affect cognition in, in the older patient. Thank you very much for your time. And John's full article, which includes all of the standard assessments that were mentioned, is available online on bmj.com. That was the second article in this series. Last week we published a functional assessment, which included a video, and next week we'll have Fall's assessment, which includes four more. That's all for this week. We'll be back next week with more from the world of medicine. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.